Hello everyone, welcome to episode 6 of Gossip, a podcast series where we discuss and try to better understand alternative perspectives on issues. The podcast series is part of Chris Network's ongoing efforts to create a safer space for discourse on gender inequality issues and human rights. My name is Angela Kugudas and I will be your host for today. Our topic today is on the issue of the future of work in the context of a growing digital economy. And this is part two of the conversation we had in the previous episode. There is just so much to understand and unpack. We're happy to have with us Siti Aisha Tumin and Rachel Gong, both researchers with the Kazana Research Institute. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me here today. Thank you for having us. We have a situation where the poor and labor are still reeling from the pandemic and an economic crisis. A number, including the state, look to the digital economy with hope. However, the application of big data, new algorithms, and cloud computing is fast changing the nature of work and the structure of the economy as we know it. Even as we speak today, stronger efforts are being made to digitalize all work sectors and as much as possible. But the exact nature of that change will be determined by the social, political, and business choices we make. Names that have been bandied about for the new emerging digital economies are like creative economy and sharing economy. While others who are more skeptical about such economies call it the gig economy, the precariat, or the 1099 economy, focusing on its impact on workers and how they are compensated or not. So Rachel, most of us are usually aware of Airbnb, Grab, selling our goods and services over the internet, like through Lazada and Shopee. But what exactly is this digital economy and all these other terms that people have been bending about? And does the digital economy, such as the platform economy, offer more opportunities to labor than conventional employment? Right. Thanks. Thanks for that question. I think it's an important one that uh, we don't really dig into very often because we take for granted that we understand what the term digital economy means. And when that term was first coined um, some maybe 30 years or so ago, what it meant then was that there were sectors of the economy that were generating revenue based on the use or the application of what were then uh, very new, innovative digital technologies. Uh, And here they chiefly meant the internet. So when eBay was founded in 1995, the idea of buying and selling things online, especially in an auction kind of format, was so unusual. And so people could really clearly separate it from traditional commerce. Now, of course, everything digital is so intertwined with the way we live our lives, such that the digital economy is the economy, or at least the digital economy is where all of the economy is headed. And I think it's fair to say that anyone using a computer connected to the internet these days as part of work is really kind of part of the broader digital economy. So it's hard for us now to separate digital economy from the conventional economy per se. You might think of, let's say, agriculture as an economic sector that might remain outside the digital economy. But we're seeing a lot of advances and a lot of developing technologies, such as drones or um, automated hydroponics in this sector. You might also think of you know, hawkers or, or warons as being outside the digital economy. But with e-payments coming in and, and financial transfers, and especially the move in Indonesia, for example, uh, towards making Warung's e-commerce hubs, those are coming into the digital economy as well. So while broadly speaking, the 
digital economy, the future of the economy, is definitely going to offer lots of labor opportunities. It brings with it a whole new set of requirements and challenges, among them improved infrastructure and new ways of doing business, uh, labor rights reform, uh, all those sorts of things. And while the platform economy may offer new opportunities, it's also going to have all these risks and challenges. And the changing nature of work in this sense probably means that we have to wrestle a little bit more with questions about what really is the nature of work and what really is the purpose of work. What you said reminds me of, you know, in the 1990s, especially people were saying the future is digital. And this is clearly becoming a, a huge reality for a lot of us. But it also raises the issue of like access to internet connectivity, whether that should be a right. Uh, recently, you know, our minister of the Ministry of Communications Multimedia, you know, he mentioned that internet access should be a human right. And uh, the government is uh, likely looking into this. But then what is the understanding? What should be the understanding of this uh, phrase, internet access should be a human right? Yeah, I think that's a challenging question because they went from first thinking about it as a public utility, which at least from a very uh, practical policy point of view, meant that the government would commit to making sure that this service was provided and the cost would be borne by the government, even if uh, it wasn't profitable, which previously is sort of relied on the private sector to make sure that telecommunication services uh, were provided, you know, partly because they were profitable. And so making it a public utility meant that the government would at least cover those costs. When you raise the bar, as it were, and say that it's not just a public utility, but a human right, uh, then you put it on a, I think, a slightly different priority level, which really means that you have to commit to making sure that this is accessible, really not just for convenience or in populated areas, as has previously been the target, but really for everyone that you're responsible for in, your, in the country that you're governing or the area that you're governing. And I think that really indicates, whether it's a political statement or it indicates the recognition of how important internet connectivity is going forward as a means of building not just the economy, but also the kind of foundations of how we interact, how we have education, how we socialize. I think those are going to be big challenges for a government to seriously commit to. And it's gonna require both regional and international um, efforts, I think, to make sure that this is this is something that can be achieved at a global scale. Thanks for that. And I'd like to come back to that and maybe unpack that a bit more. But let's uh, go to City. Some academics have argued that just because the economy and work sectors become more digitalized, it will not mean that there is less work. I mean, this is normally a concern for people who only have their labor to offer, right? As soon as there's automation, as soon as there's more sort of digitalization? Does that mean, you know, I'm going to lose my job? And we have certainly seen the sectors that will always need workers, the medical sector, the sanitization sector, especially now with the pandemic, I would argue that it's still going on. Finance sector, food production, the data value chains that these sort of digitalizations bring about seem to profit still only those on top of that chain. The lower rungs of that data value chain are often occupied by women and these are, you know, rungs where the section of the, the workforce that's heavily feminized, because of that, there's very little to zero 
trickle-down benefits of any kind. So what about other sectors that I haven't mentioned? You know, how are they faring and what balance will there be among jobs created as the digital wave flows through our economy and society and which workers will be displaced? I think, um, you know, at, at least based on how academics try to look at it, you know, typically the types of jobs that are going to be displaced are, are tasks that you can automate easily. So tasks that you repeat, you know, many times um, and that can be automated. And in a lot of ways, you know, it involves quite a significant number of semi-skilled jobs. So, you know, in manufacturing, for example, in some services sector, these tasks that you do on, on repeated mode can be automated. And, you know, the effects on which sector I think is quite widespread because, you know, regardless of the sector, some tasks um, uh, can be repeated. And that's why I think there is a level of uncertainty in terms of, you know, which jobs get displaced, which job remains. Um, But I think I also kind of want to take a little bit more I'm not sure if it's optimistic um, or or realistic in that sense, but like you said, even though we have all this digital technology, the nature of some work actually doesn't change. And I think this is where, you know, sometimes when we talk about automation and digitalization, there is also this need to kind of also think actually what are new opportunities that um, we can create in the economy. You know, say, for example, think of someone who, you know, every day is doing just one task. Um, can you imagine what that does to the psyche in terms of having to repeat the same thing again and again just for a paycheck? What mm. if this type of jobs can be replaced by a machine and we can, you know, situate this person in another job that, say, uses their, their human skills, you know, to be, ab- to be able to add value? Now, now that, I think, would be a, a, another way to look at how digitalization and automation can help us. Now, of course, the next question is, you know, the task of moving this person from that repeated uh, task-based job to something that is, you know, hopefully more meaningful is is quite difficult. And this is where I think, um, you know, the government plays a very, very important role to kind of help this effort to reskill people and upskill people if necessary. And I think a a broader uh, kind of um, discussion at policy and even society level is actually for us to not only rethink, but also question how we value human-centric jobs to begin with. So for example, care work. Um, These are jobs that that cannot be replaced by by machines and whatnot. But historically, they tend to be undervalued. And this is where, say, most women are employed in. So knowing that these jobs actually cannot be easily replicated, shouldn't that mean these jobs should you know be compensated with a much higher value than what they are paid now so i think rethinking about um uh, like rachel said you know what does work mean and how do we value it um definitely is is an important discussion that we need to have um in this you know changing nature of of digital um phenomena that, that we are seeing in our world today yeah i mean what you mentioned like in terms of you know like um work that is so repetitive mechanized right i've actually seen a woman you know like she's packing the sort of the tea packets right her hands and the way she moves you know especially her fingers and her hands it reminded me you know and this was years ago and it reminded me of uh, you know a machine a really a machine and um, other colleagues have you know who work with women workers actually say that those who work in that sort of 
production line usually only mm. have like one toilet break and that's it. I think I, I would have been sacked very quickly, right? Because <laughs> who doesn't have a stomach ache every now and then, right? So it's so uh, dehumanized. And I think um, you're right, automation, the digitalization would definitely benefit where, where we can sort of have these workers do something else that maybe is more fulfilling. But then again, like you said, the, the caregiving work is so undervalued you, you, you appear to suggest that there needs to be also a cultural change, you know, in terms of our attitude towards care work and the work, the kind of work that women do. But how do we bring that about, Siji? I think there are um, multiple, well, not multiple, there are some policy changes that, um, you know, could be put in place. I think this reflects back to um, a report back in 2019 that Rachel was actually um, part of the team that worked on that, um, looking at care policies in Malaysia. So um, I think the report touches a little bit on, um, firstly, the provision of care in the formal sector, how much um, also in the informal sector where a lot of uh, households are actually relying on, that itself is something that we have not tried to formalize and you know give as much support as we can so that uh, not only children that are cared for, but also their care um, have some guidance in terms of what it means for us to give good quality care uh, for children. Um, there are also various um, employment policies, for example, that uh, ought to you know, be, be um, implemented so that we recognize um, you know, if some women need to leave the workforce temporarily to do this care work, they need to be treated fairly, compensated fairly while, we, while they do that essential work. Um, and so you know, on multiple angles, I think there are definitely small parts of the bigger picture that we can push forward. Um, but again, at the end of the day, um, the society themselves must be willing to kind of rethink how they see care work and, and who they assign the care work to and how do they value and compensate um, that essential work beyond just saying, you know, I appreciate your hard work uh, doing this and that, um, but also really think about how to objectively um, appreciate um, and recognize this work. Yeah, and yeah, maybe even sort of change the sort of perspective, you know, professionalization of care work, right? How do we create that esteem around that kind of work? Yes, Rachel. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to add um, that, yes, the the value of, of care work as a profession is one thing. But I remember, uh, and thanks, Siti, for, for reminding me of, of this story. Um, when we were doing advocacy for that report and we said to people, you know, one of the more straightforward ways of helping women with the burden, the extra burden of care work that they were dealing with is perhaps let's consider not just maternity leave, but paternity leave as well. And all the, well, I wouldn't say all, that's an exaggeration. A good number of the people who we had been speaking to who had previously saw, sat there and listened to us and said, yes, we agree with you. Uh, care work really should be valued more. We should consider the formalization of the sector and improved wages. Once we shifted this to, well, shouldn't the men play a role as well? Shouldn't they have some responsibility and share some of this burden? Everybody sort of thought, I use everybody again. There was this reaction <laughs> of, oh no, no, what do you mean? Why, why, would, why would the men get involved? Let's value women more, but that doesn't mean that men come into it. And I think it speaks to what um, you were saying earlier, Angela, about there's a whole sort of cultural mindset that needs to change around that as well. Yeah, thanks for that, Rachel. 
it also points to you know the importance of public institutions, but then uh, not just public institutions, but good public institutions like those who really care about the people on the ground. But companies such as Amazon, Etsy, Facebook, Google, Salesforce, Airbnb, Uber, and Grab are creating these online structures that enable a wide range of human activities, no doubt. But together, they are provoking the reorganization of a wide variety of markets, work arrangements, and ultimately value creation and capture. These effectively change how participants in this, you know, this whole sort of new reorganization of work interact with one another. Arguably, it is, has created more tenuous relationships between employer and employee, or more like between workers and capital and platform owners. To make matters worse, we also have these algorithms, right, that are being deployed and algorithm management is closely intertwined with the digital economy. Companies like Grab, Foodpanda rely on the algorithm to direct work to their workers. There's almost no way to audit or to check how these algorithms really work and who gets an unjust deal because of business practices and the categorization of the algorithm as proprietary ownership. So, so Rachel, what are the implications for the future of work in such a context where algorithms and data-driven control over our work behavior and even consumer behavior is now taking so much predominance in our lives? How do we make sure that opportunities are still equally accessible to everyone, irrespective of what social status they may hold? So let me try also to be as as optimistic as, as City was uh, with the sort of introduction of automation in sort of freeing up people from monotonous work. I think there's a way in which um, algorithms and that kind of data-driven mechanisms can open up new opportunities and can connect people in ways that we didn't think of before. But there's a lesson that's to be learned from the platform economy that contrary to the idea that workers do have this additional freedom and flexibility and control over the work, the algorithms are now the new masters and it's the algorithms that determine what kinds of jobs they'll get, how well they get compensated for their work, how the work is distributed among the pool of workers and so on. And it turns out that workers will have very little input into this decision-making process and very little recourse to challenge the outcomes of this process. So that's a challenge that I think now uh, labor and technology researchers and policymakers have recognized, and they're starting to work on it so that that changes a little bit. But it's going to need to change a lot more for, as you were saying, for the platform work to be a viable and decent source of work for the masses. So because the algorithms are not neutral, even if they were originally developed with the intent to promote equity of opportunity and, and decent wages, they were also designed with an eye towards optimization. And that usually means prioritizing the workers who do well and sidelining the workers who are already a little bit disadvantaged to begin with. And here we come back perhaps to um, you know, groups like women who already have uh, extra burden of care work to deal with, or those who can't afford to spend 12 to 16 hours online waiting for jobs, or those who may lack the digital literacy that's needed to work around the algorithms and find hacks to the system. And a hack may be as simple as, you know, food delivery riders hanging around popular restaurants during peak hours waiting 
for orders to come in, or it may be as complex as groups of drivers banding together to do their own traffic analysis during search hours so that they can actually predict the next areas more by human intuition rather than algorithms. But at the end of the day, the machines are not going to look out for the workers. And so interventions by platforms, by governments, uh, by these worker collaboratives and unions are going to be sorely needed. So worker unions in Spain, for example, earlier this year made some huge gains because uh, platform workers were considered employees and were entitled to social protections. And more importantly, they won a new right, the right to algorithm transparency. So mm. meaning that platforms in Spain are now required to disclose how their algorithms are determining working conditions and how they're assigning jobs and profiling workers. So that's a definite start. Um, that's you know something positive about how we can get a handle on algorithms and start to even the playing field a little bit. Yeah, that's a really good example. Uh, can can I also just add a little bit um, on, sure. on Rachel's point, especially in terms of thinking about uh, the ecosystem and environment of the you know digitally enabled businesses? I think we must also uh, remember the equation, uh, the, the full equation of the the other side, of, which is uh, customers and and businesses that use these platforms to kind of find workers. You know, so for example, you know the algorithm. Um, I mean, of course, I think it's 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 you know it can be biased in multiple ways, and it, it its drive towards this optimization ultimately is also driven by our consistent demand for things that are very quick, things that are very cheap, and I think there needs to be a greater conversation at societal level in terms of are we really pushing platforms to be this level of efficient just so that we can you know order things um, from the comfort of our sofas, but at the risk of, you know, putting a, a, a delivery rider at risk, for example, you know, the, the drive for efficiency for um, all these potentially precarious nature of work, we also have to remember customers, businesses that use these platforms are also partially responsible for that. You know, as much as we would kind of want to just paint um, platforms as, you know, the evil guy, we also have to remember that we might also play some part in that. And I think greater conversation and actually discussion about maybe we need to kind of alter our preferences a little bit um, is also probably a step um, a bit further to kind of make sure everything is, is moving towards a fairer direction. But isn't it necessary then to also then look at where is the demand coming from? Because as we know, wages haven't really gone up that much in Malaysia, you know, mm -hmm. compared to say, you know, th those who own capital, right, in terms of uh, having assets, etc, you know, they've benefited the most. Mm -hmm. So if wages don't go up, and the middle income households are actually becoming lower income households, you know, or lower middle income households, then the market is actually driven by these, right? If uh, the middle income people, their wages are low, of course, they're going to keep asking for cheaper, you know, cheaper stuff cheaper mm. <laughs> everything everything has to be cheaper yeah, yeah and then uh, so how you know we, we become trapped right to a certain extent when when Rachel also mentioned masters you know it reminds me that we actually have new feudal masters right in the platform mm -hmm. economies in the platform owners because they've created this whole ecosystem where they can just exploit people's labor they can exploit assets that they don't even own and they can monetize personal data right 
they can just harvest this data and collect it, you know, just because you want this free stuff or you want to be employed within that e ecosystem. There's just so much going against people who only have labor to offer. And, and it does point to the, this need. I think uh, if we say internet access is a human right, then I think unionizing has to be a human right and has to be allowed in Malaysia. Otherwise, there's no way because only labor will look after labor, I feel. <laughs> what do you think, mm -hmm. Siti? I think so. I think that's the way too, you know. And, and I think for most of us, actually, we do have to rely on our labor. It's I don't foresee a future where none of us actually have to work. I think, you know, there are some uh, slightly more optimistic take on this in the sense uh, there is some evidence to, to show, you know, perhaps if we try to increase the value of labor through things like education, you know, human capital investment, um, that might be, uh, you know, a step uh, forward in terms of, you know, making sure uh, people have the capacity to kind of deal with these big changes. Um, but again, um, I think um, the, the policies itself are very important and I support it. Um, but we, we will always still miss some people, you know, in, in this kind of policy push. And, and, you know, sometimes it's not even something that you can control. Sometimes it's determined by, you know, what kind of family you're born into, what kind of investments uh, were made when you were very, very young. And, and then it's linked to not just education policy, but also care policy, policies on, um, you know, early childhood development, policies on social protection for, for children, for example. These things are all interconnected um, and they play a very, very large role in terms of determining how well can you, you know, um, quote unquote, market your labor later on in life. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I think um, it is true that only people can protect people. And unfortunately, sometimes, you know, because we are, we're not in the same uh, you know, I mean, we can disagree, but, you know, when we disagree with so many tiny, tiny things, we get lost in, you know, the bigger discussion of, say, actually, um, the one that sh we should be working together to kind of like, uh, you know, make sure we protect our rights is, I know, the specific large companies or how, how um, algorithms are actually shaping the nature of our work and our life. Um, but again, um, I mean, I hope um, the work that we do here right now um, can can help contribute to you know, shape all our thinking towards that direction. It also raises a question, who, who then is going to invest in reskilling labour? We know public institutions are a lot weaker against corporations. Corporations seem to be generating the income and also collecting the income, right? Because there's tax evasion, there's illicit financial flows. All that is happening. And uh, those who are supposed to pay taxes, who really can afford to pay the higher taxes, don't or, or mm -hmm. try to escape it. And so, you know, you have uh, public institutions that are suffering and, uh, and of course, we have, you know, other issues to, to deal with. But who then will then invest in labor because it's such a slow process? Many will say it's so unrewarding, it's so unprofitable, you know. Is the way forward having more social sort of entrepreneurship, is the way forward, you know, rethinking what do we mean by entrepreneurship? Um, I think I would just uh, I just want to share a little bit in terms of how the government has uh, kind of tried to to solve this issue of you know there's no incentive and there's no resources. So um, we already have um, a, a levy, a, a levy. I think that's how you pronounce it. A levy on um, companies uh, for a human capital development fund. 
um, of course, you know, initially it was only um, uh, it was only mandatory for um, certain subsectors, uh, manufacturing, selected services, uh, utility companies, and, and whatnot. Um, and what they do is that they collect funds uh, from businesses. And what businesses can do is they can claim back that fund to send their workers to training. So um, it creates a, an incentive for companies to kind of like push their workers to, you know, go through trainings. And this is, you know, um, an important um, part of, of, you know, making sure people are reskilled and upskilling appropriately so that, you know, they can advance in their career. But one limitation of that model was of, of the selection of, of the economic activities um, that uh, contribute to this fund. Um, the government actually recently expanded this um, and more subsectors uh, can contribute to the fund. And, and so, you know, the government kind of hopes that, you know, when you have that commitment, you will actually send your workers uh, to training. But of course, limitation is when you don't have um, a, a proper employer. You know, if you are self-employed, for instance, you still have to rely on your own individual savings and whatnot. And I think on that angle, um, this is when discussion about, you know, more affordable lifelong learning institutions are very, very important. And I think um, in Malaysia, um, although, you know, that the topic of lifelong learning, for example, um, has been featured um, in, you know, RMKs and whatnot, but I think, you know, it's still very much uh, focusing on, uh, you know, a certain thinking about, you know, professionalizing people into a certain job, a certain career, or targeting certain um, subsectors and whatnot. So I think, you know, thinking about how can we replicate, for example, um, community colleges um, in other countries where even if you're 65 years old and you suddenly decide you want to pick up a new skill, you know, there is an opportunity for you to do that. Um, but I think, you know, um, that is still um, underinvested and we are still not thinking strategically uh, along those lines yet. So I think the work in terms of thinking about how we can help people in their human capital investment um, has to be in that direction. I take your point on, you know, if, if people need to be more entrepreneurial and, and whatnot. Um, I think it is important uh, to, to kind of think uh, in that way, um, not just, you know, for, for reasons of, you know, making uh, profits and whatnot, but, you know, the idea of being an entrepreneur itself is, is you're actually an agile person in a particular work, a particular scope. So um, in a way, um, you know, even if someone is an employee, you can have entrepreneurial features, you can have, you know, certain creative ways about approaching your job. Um, but I think um, it is very, very difficult and and rare for people to have that opportunity for example um, I mean I I am um, quite young so I've only been working for four years um, and you know I I feel that you know sometimes I have freedom in certain ways but maybe not others um, mm. and you know I think this creates a sense of um, a lot of people in my generation really wants to be their own boss because of you know these different structures into this this almost too conservative structure of hierarchy and whatnot that we want to be entrepreneurs ourselves. But I think um, rather than, you know, kind of, okay, maybe it's just not a fit for the job or, or the market and whatnot. I think rethinking about how human resources practices actually value workers, you know, um, is also an important exercise um, yeah, so that so that, you know, people find value in the work that they do, um, even if they are working for someone else. Um, because again, work is a significant part of our life. And if we don't find fulfillment in it, it's it's very hard to, to lead a decent life, right? Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with you in terms of valuing human resource and, and putting in the investment. I, I just worry because, you know, people seem to be, I mean, the, the traditionally the, the institutions that we rely on in terms of uh, creating employment seem to be less able to do so. So then labor seems to be suffering the worst uh, in terms of these situations. Rachel, yeah, I uh, just wanted, yeah, if yes. I might just make a comment uh, sure. in response to what City was saying about the Human uh, Resources Development Fund, where I, I think here's where it's interesting to see policy uh, go hand in hand with implementation, or rather how sometimes the best intention policy can be undone by you know, poor implementation. So here mm. I'm thinking about an employer, uh, not, not self-employed, we're talking about here a, a, an employer who's contributing to the workers' fund because that's what's required of them, but is as a leader and a manager not particularly invested in lifelong learning for their workers and their employees, and as such does not really encourage workers to take advantage of the fact that such trainings are available or does not reward or incentivize um, workers for doing so. And at the end of the day, you've got a policy that started out with the best intentions, uh, but it's just not working out. And I think that is symptomatic of, of a bigger issue of perhaps us being over focused on what we think is uh, right and, and wise in terms of the economy, which is chasing efficiency and profit. So one thing to consider when we talk about the introduction of technologies, digital technologies, and if they really are going to optimize some of that work in that way, is that going to be able to free up people to be more creative, to be more entrepreneurial? Um, and as, as City's work uh, is currently talking about, if there is a social protection floor that allows people a little bit more freedom, a little bit more individual creativity to explore those options um, and you know, put labor in for its value and its, its own value, as it were, as opposed to the value put upon labor by capital, if that's a coherent way of, of phrasing it, I wonder really where the economy could go. And that may be a little bit sort of almost science fiction, speculative fiction to think about, but there are opportunities for that to happen if we can think about how we want to govern the way we're using automation, the way we're using artificial intelligence. Is what we're trying to put into the world of work really something that's going to be beneficial for society as opposed to just beneficial for capital? Yeah, I'm really intrigued by that idea because you're sort of indirectly implying as well that the pace of today's sort of workday, right? It's so intense. I think it's much more intense than my mother's time or my grandmother's time. You know, it, we're always working and people are always overworking. They're working towards the night. You know, most people nowadays will talk about 12-hour workdays. <laughs> <laughs> and that hasn't included yet the housework no? <laughs> or the caregiving work. So, you know, I mean, just to give space to people and to actually have that whole mind shift to say like, okay, people need space to be creative, to then, you know, innovate, right? It's not just people with money, but ordinary people can innovate as well. And I completely agree with you that there is a need to rethink 
to uh, a need to apply our you know whatever capacities we have and capabilities we have you know to rethink how how do we create a different economy right an ecosystem in fact uh, for all of us to survive because it's because it's come to a stage where it's no longer only just about job security, but it's also securing livelihoods. People don't have ways to even earn an income these days. So Rachel, there is no doubt that with the digitalization of the economic sectors, we will see digital governance of data have even greater implications and impact on who can access business and employment opportunities. Already we have several problems as I said before, you know, information and opportunities being accessible to B40 households. Uh, we know that the government has, you know, so many different programs, but oftentimes we've heard over and over again that people don't get access to information. Even the Penang state government, you know, those who work with the Penang state government, they know, or those who work on, for example, like gender responsive budgeting, they know that women on the ground don't get this information, don't get access to these opportunities. So are we really prepared at all to ensure that there is this whole fairer distribution of wealth to ensure justice in terms of, you know, where the benefits flow and whether labor will really benefit from this? Because without labor earning an income, we actually don't have markets. I mean, I, do, I really don't think unless someone else can tell me that, you know, the market is, great, is being sustained by something else. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's going to be a really big challenge going forward because, as you rightly have mentioned, so much of development in the digital space and the innovation that's driven in that space depends on us having data. And we're not even here thinking yet of the sort of uh, algorithmic data that goes into driving AI, as you were talking about it, we're talking about just getting information, basic numbers and statistics out to employers, uh, to, to emp workers and job seekers so that they know what they're looking for. I mean, one of the big challenges I, I think most job seekers would face in Malaysia is trying to figure out actually what is a going market rate what are the wages that I should expect given my qualifications, given my experience? Um, how does this differ across sectors? There's just so little information out there. And I think this, this data scarcity issue is well known. It's you know, very widely acknowledged. And as a result, there's a lot of skepticism and a lot of uh, lack of trust regarding the data and statistics that are available. So I do think that the government is aware of this and as part of its commitment to digital transformation and making Malaysia a digital leader in the region, it has indicated its intention to improve data governance and data availability. I believe there was an announcement by uh, MDEC, the Malaysian Digital Economic uh, Corporation, uh, of basically creating a data ecosystem for small businesses and and uh, small and medium enterprises to share data, to analyze this data and to, to grow their markets. But right now it's not clear who are the players who are going to have access to this data. And as you might well imagine, it's going to be the big players, the players who already have resources, the players who are already doing market analysis and market research and already have a leg up. So despite the introduction of these technologies, despite the introduction of a data ecosystem, we're still not being inclusive enough, I think, 
in the way we implement these systems. Um, we're not being proactive enough in the way that we allow different people to benefit from the advances that we're trying to introduce. So I think it does stem, even though there's a lot of um, opportunity available and we're seeing some movement in the legal and regular, re regulatory areas, uh, that alone won't be sufficient without us having more education and more public awareness about data and what data can be used for. And I don't think this issue is entirely one of, of data governance. There's a huge component around trust and the way this information is communicated as well. So if you think back again, sort of before this digital era that we're now in, when government and media had a much larger agenda setting role, mm. they basically told the public what was important. But today we've got social media and there's no telling really what issue is the hot issue of the day that's going to bubble up and what's going to capture the public imagination and therefore policy interest and who are the loudest voices? Are they necessarily the ones with the public interest at heart? So being able to trust the people who are amplifying these kinds of issues is one thing and recognizing where their own biases and where their agendas lie is another thing. And that's the kind of digital literacy I think that we really need to be developing above and beyond the basic digital skills of, well, how do I use social media and how do I filter my social media feed and so on and so forth. That's a lot of this sort of critical thinking that needs to be incorporated there as well. Yeah, thanks so much, Rachel, for, for those thoughts. Um, but it does raise some issues in terms of who exactly will have access to this data and then who will know where the opportunities opportunities lie, where they can make the most money out of it, optimize it, make profits, you know. There was a time when I raised like, oh, you know, uh, the issue that uh, we really do need to control excessive profit making. But then I was asked, how are you going to research that? <laughs> but, you know, yeah. I, I think the, the simple answer to that is really looking at competition. If the market doesn't have enough competitors, then that alone is going to be problematic. I guess what I'm trying to get at in terms of the that whole data governance and who has access to it, if only a few companies and corporations are going to be the ones to benefit from it and not so much the small, medium, you know, enterprises, then, then we will never be able to move forward because they are always trying to struggle to get up uh, to that level of where they can actually afford even to pay towards this human resource development fund, right? I guess my question is, sh shouldn't it also be about political will? So one, one is the issue of competition. Then the, the other is uh, control because oftentimes when people have data, I mean, the, the idea is to control, control consumer behavior. That's the sort of the lighter end. Uh, but the other end is to control, you know, citizens <laughs> and where they go and what they do. And, and uh, you know, remember when we, our identity card was supposed to have health information, right? So that, yes. uh, yeah, so that, you know, people who, who are in suddenly health emergencies, you know, those who are helping them will have access to the data. But when I went to the Ministry of Health and ask them, so what happened to this grandiose idea of helping people, you know, uh, knowing that what whatever illnesses they may have, they said that the, the chip doesn't just, just, just doesn't, cannot have, doesn't have the capacity to hold all these images and 
or whatever that in data that uh, a health worker may need or you know a medical expert may need and and so it never it never materialized so what do you think about that rachel yeah i think that's a really interesting example and i i can accept that i think in terms of storage capacity, the issue of storage capacity, when the idea was first mooted. Because back then, yes, you were putting a lot of information on one card, one piece of, um, yeah, sorry, let me rewind that. Um, you were putting a lot of information on one chip. But today, when we think about everything essentially being cloud computing, everything essentially being stored on a remote server and backed up multiple times so that it's accessible even if the first one goes down. I don't think that excuse holds water anymore. And there are ways to make things accessible. For example, your MyCard uh, would be a sort of pass key that would give access to the data that has been saved on the cloud. And that's one way of getting around that. But it comes back to the point that you made around political will. And the idea that really what we want to see is some of these technologies being um, adapted and implemented in ways that are for the public interest that aren't necessarily profitable. And I think that's really where the challenge is for us when we think about the future of a digital world. Is it going to be driven by uh, pure market forces without interventions that can keep it in check and make sure that the public interest is being served, even at cost? Or are we going to allow it to sort of, let's see what really grand and, and truly exciting and innovative things we can develop, but these are only going to benefit a very small section of society. So in this uh, context, right, where we have weak weak or weaker public institutions, we have planned obsolescence in our digital products, you know, uh, growing e-waste of 57 million tons that doubles every few years. I think this year it's estimated at 57 million tons. If we have, uh, you know, the whole economic structure still continuing digitally or not, you know, uh, still continuing to benefit only the richest 10%, uh, this is definitely going to be hardly sustainable. And uh, there has been, you know, in our last uh, episode, you know, uh, one of our speakers, uh, Mastura, you know, she mentioned that there's a need that, you know, yes, we, we put emphasis on digitalization, but there's a need to actually grow or at least to strengthen the economy at the, in the rural areas, to strengthen local economy where women actually matter, where the value of work of women actually matter. Is this something that uh, you, Rachel, and Siti um, have any thoughts on? Rachel, maybe we can start with you. Yes, thanks. I definitely have some ideas on that. I think one of the things that um, my research on sort of digitalization and the challenges of the digital divide have revealed is really, or rather that they've reinforced, I, I think I at some level recognize this, but it's really been reinforced that the solutions cannot simply be, well, let's make that thing digital or let's throw some technology at it and that will solve the problem. Uh, that's really not going to help. And what we need to look at when we look at these um, issues of inequality, how do we 
you know, bring women to the table? How do we make sure that their work is valued? How do we make sure that they have opportunities? That's all, those are all problems that require social solutions, not technical solutions. And I think right now, what we're doing is throwing technical solutions and technology at the problem. So mm. I do think that we need to come back to recognizing that a lot of these issues, again, are social issues. Um, and that's where the work of having good systems in place, things like, I mean, cities work on social protections, uh, the idea of lifelong learning. These are not technological solutions. Technology can make them better, can make them easier, can make them more efficient, but we're still having to work with culture and mindsets. And to change all that, to really get us to reform all that is going to require, I think, long-term um, solutions, for example, starting with education. And what I would say here is I think a lot of the emphasis on education has been, let's teach skills, right? Let's teach people programming. Let's teach people data analysis. And in my opinion, what's really needed is teaching people, um, giving them more civic, edu civic education on what actually is the role of a citizen in society. What's your responsibility to your community? What can you demand from your government? What can you demand from your employer? What are your rights? Where does voting come in? Where does taxes come in? It's those things that I think we are a bit lacking in that do need to be given quite a bit more attention to if we want to get out of the rut that I think we're in. Thanks for that, Rachel. City. Um, yeah, I also, um, I definitely agree with Rachel. And I think I want to sort of comment on, on your earlier point about in this space where we have weakening public institutions, um, I think the solution, part of the, the solution has to be about strengthening of public situation. And actually, um, for us to kind of, um, you know, if possible, um, even master the, the technology itself um, to deliver good public service. Um, so um, Rachel mentioned a little bit about my work in social protection. Um, and, and one of the ways that we think is an essential um policy to help people in terms of you know protecting their livelihoods is the provision of a universal social protection for everyone in the country at every stage of their life um, you know from the day you were born to the day you would die you have to have access to you know multiple types of um, assistance uh, programs by the government uh, so that you know when you need it you have access to it and you can benefit from it but just imagine the amount of work to be able to follow someone from you know the day they were born to the day they, they die. You cannot mm. do this unless you have um, modernization of how we think about delivery of public services. And I think oh. um, you know uh, making you know the, the government, the, the people um, and businesses should you know take up on this challenge and on how we modernize. Um, public uh, service. Um, and in our report, you know, we talk about, you know, consolidating the, the different databases that different ministries currently have, having a kind of a unified social registry type of infrastructure, which can be assisted by, you know, the uh, by having 
by using our national identity card. Um, and in fact, you know, to, to hopefully um, include people who don't have IC before to be part of the system, you know, by making sure, by, by giving them access to social protection and then putting them on the system. There's various potential in terms of how we use technology and digital tools to also improve welfare. But there must be, um, you know, willingness by the government to do this. Um, there must be readiness by, by the institutions, the civil servants to uptake this challenge. They need to upskill themselves too. And for us to also demand um, such efficiency um, from, from uh, the, the government when they deliver those services to us. So I think it's, it's kind of a, a whole of society um, thinking about, you know, how, how we live in, in, a, in a modern society. Thank you for that, Siti. So we just heard from Siti Aisha Tumin and Rachel Gong, who discussed the issue of the future of work and this whole thing about digital economy and how it affects our lives. They've also pointed to very critical factors in terms of how we need to move forward in terms of thinking about not just digitalization, but also this whole shift in terms of consciousness, our attitude toward holding government accountable, educating ourselves about our citizenship rights, this whole sort of ecosystem of, I guess, in a way, critical thinking and perspective, all of that will then bring about the other things that we need, like social protections, the opportunities for life, lifelong learning. I think they have sort of pointed to very critical uh, elements of what makes or what could make a great alternative ecosystem for us to all survive in. So thank you so much to Siti Aisha Tumin and Rachel Gong for being here and for sharing your insights and thoughts on this issue. Thank you for having us, Angela. We're happy to be here. Yes, it's our pleasure to be here. If you enjoyed listening to Gossip, do follow us and stay tuned for our next episode on gender-responsive budgeting. So this is one way of keeping the government accountable and one entry point. Basically, why should you care about the national budget and how women are excluded from it or can be included in it? You can find Chris Network on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Remember, Gossip is where alternative perspectives make sense. 